Welcome back to episode 17 in our study of the book of Revelation. This episode is called The Purpose of the Fourfold Trials. I'm Sam Bracken, your host, and our teacher is Dr. Breck England, who is discussing the book of Revelation through the lens of the temple. We are now in Revelation chapter 6. The Lord is unsealing the book with the seven seals. In our last podcast, we discussed the first four seals, where we see the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. Breck, can you pick up where we left off and talk about the meaning of the four horsemen? Yes, but first let's remember where we are in the book of Revelation. We are still in the council in heaven, and the Savior is showing us the trials of mortality that are described in the sealed book. We've seen that the first four seals represent the universal tribulations that we all suffer in the celestial world here below. The ordeals of the four horsemen are essential to the probationary state that we all go through. There's one non-LDS scholar who I think is really interesting. He says that these trials punish sin, but, and this is important, they also, quote, simultaneously purify the righteous remnant by testing their faith, unquote. Mm, that's and that's good. a non-LDS scholar. I think he's, he's, he's got a great insight. There. Yeah, he's spot on He with sees that. the yeah. reason for mortality. Yeah. There's another scholar, a French theologian named Jacques Ellul. I quote him a lot, by the way, because I like him. He says that the fourfold trials, quote, are the four chief components of history. The history of men is made up of the intermingling of political power, economic power, forces of destruction, negation, and death. These same forces are at work always, in all epochs, and in all regimes. History is a thread woven by these four forces in movement, always renewed, always present, always in action, close quote. In other words, taken all together, they make up the great tribulation that proves every soul who comes into this world. The four horsemen. The four horsemen symbolize unrighteous dominion, Contention and war, economic oppression, and disease and death. Exactly. Okay. Joseph Smith put these trials in sequence. He said, quote, The first seal contains the things of the first thousand years, the second of the second thousand years, and so on until the seventh. That's in Doctrine and Covenant 77, verse 7. In other words, one horseman leads to another, right? Mm -hmm. The theologian Gregory Beale, a very prominent New Testament thinker, he says this, quote, Conquest, the first rider, together with civil unrest, the second rider, leads to famine, the third rider, and death, the fourth rider. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's fairly, fairly logical. Yeah, very much. Now, one way to see Joseph Smith's explanation is to connect each horseman to a certain historical period. Now, people speculate about that all the time. We can mm -hmm. speculate about that all day long. But regardless... The four horsemen follow logically on each other. Beale says this, quote, The four horsemen portray the sad history of our planet. Conquest, war, famine, and death. Over and over again. It's a vicious cycle. Now, many trials arise because of unrighteous dominion. The urge to conquer or control other people. Joseph Smith prophesied that the same four trials would follow on, quote, the rebellion of South Carolina, 
close quote. He says, the sword, famine and plague, earthquake, and the death and misery of many souls. That's the 87th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. So, so the four horsemen represent a pattern of four trials that follow each other. Yes, they always do. Uh, Jesus said that, quote, war and commotion will rage. Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, famines and pestilences. Okay, that's in Luke 21. It is the pattern of history. What's the purpose of these particular trials? Why these four? So we can learn to be like God. He rules by persuasion, long-suffering, gentleness and meekness, love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, without hypocrisy and without guile. But in this world, we experience all the opposites of these virtues. Satan runs things by force, by impatience, by cruelty, greed, ignorance, hypocrisy, and hatred. We needed to experience and overcome those things Mm -hmm. so we could appreciate their opposites. We learn to know the sweet from the bitter. Mm -hmm. These tests teach us about God. The tests teach us about him, what divine parenthood really means and what it costs. The prophet Job cried out, quote, God has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. They whom I loved are turned against me. Abraham suffers through being disowned and nearly killed by his own family. Years of barrenness and warfare, and finally, he gets a commandment to sacrifice his own son. Uh, Job and Abraham experience very intimately the suffering of whom? The suffering of the father and the son. Yeah in working out the atonement. They learn why God does what he does, and they learn why God weeps over us. Right. In sending us into mortality, our heavenly father and mother risk losing us, and they know that. They risk losing their children to the adversary, and they must agonize over that prospect. For, for as one very sharp non-LDS theologian, whose name is Jacques Ellul, I was quoting him. Yes. <laughs> he perceives that this test is, quote, the great ordeal of God, the absolute risk of creation, unquote. Our heavenly parents watch over us anxiously, and they weep at our troubles, but they know we have to have them. He has asked his children, quote, that they should love one another, that they should choose me, their father, but behold, they are without affection, They hate their own blood. Satan shall be their father, and misery shall be their doom. Wherefore should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer by their own choice? Moses chapter 7. Many of us won't pass the test. Our heavenly parents knew the risk of losing us. It's up to us to learn how to be like them. And that's the point of it all, to learn to be like them. That's why we have families. That's the great reason for experiencing parenthood, to find out what it takes to be an eternal father and mother. Our our families provide us both our deepest sorrows and our greatest joys. Nothing exceeds a parent's pain at the loss of a child, whether physical or spiritual. Well, no joy exceeds a child's embrace. I don't know if you've ever had this experience yet because you're such a youngster, but have you ever had the joy of having a grandchild run to you once you to embrace him? 
I do, and it makes my day. Does, it makes my that, life. How does that feel? It's to one you? of the best feelings on the planet. The fullness of joy, in my opinion, comes from quote bearing much fruit. That is lots of kids. <laughs> it's an echo of the maternal tree of life. Yeah, sort of. We're promised to have joy in our posterity, yes, right? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. In the continuation of the seeds and the lives and in ever-expanding love. Your circle of love just gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. In these acute sorrows and joys, Adam and Eve learn not just about God, but they also learn about what it means to be gods themselves. If they're going to be gods, Adam and Eve must taste the opposite fruits, the one being bitter and the other sweet. That's in 2 Nephi 2. Learning about opposites isn't enough. You can intellectually say, oh yes, well, opposition in all things, right? But we have to experience opposition. Job cannot grasp. Remember the prophet Job, how mm -hmm. he suffered? He cannot grasp what it means to be a god until he experiences profound loss as well right. as profound joy. Right. At the end of his life, what does Job say to God? Quote, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes see thee. To arrive at this epiphany, this, uh, this aha, this insight, is the highest purpose of mortality. Now there's Eve. She's incredibly wise. She realizes there is no other way. She, she's the one who realizes there is no other way for this to work. She figured it out first. She figured it out. She said, there's yeah. no other. But to experience this opposition in all things. Without it, she says, quote, we never should have known good and evil. Mm -hmm. And the joy of our redemption and the eternal life which God giveth unto all the obedient. That's in Moses chapter 5. Experiencing the contraries. Freedom versus oppression. Peace versus war. Fairness versus injustice. Health versus sickness. And life versus death. All of that prepares us for our divine destiny. In Doctrine and Covenants 77 verse 7, Joseph Smith said that the seven seals correspond to 7,000 years. He said, we are to understand that the first seal contains the things of the first thousand years and the second seal also the second thousand years and so on what did he mean by that now we've determined that the four horsemen represent the quote four sore judgments of god right that's a, a phrase drawn from ezekiel chapter 14. we know they are the four destroyers right mm -hmm. uh, that we experience in this mortal existence. I like what one scholar, um, Charles Giblin, he's a New Testament scholar, said about this. He said, quote, the first four unsealings describe a set of ongoing events in the world. Uh, victory, bloody strife, social injustice, and death. Okay, in various violent forms. These aren't really events of the end time because they're always with us. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are events of the end time, but they have always been there. Right, okay. right. Oppression, war, injustice, and death actually started from the very beginning with Cain, who exercised unrighteous dominion, right? His very name in Hebrew, Cain or Cain, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, means, quote, acquisition, okay? The guy who takes it. Cain is the, quote, the scripture says, Cain is the master of this great secret that I may murder and get gain, okay? 
That's, mm-hmm. how, that's, that's what he's all about. Right, right. Uh, so Cain starts this cycle of human despair. Through Cain-like covetousness, we bring the penalties on ourselves of breaking the covenant. But why is each seal tied to a millennium? Why does the, the white horse belong to the first thousand years, the red horse, the second thousand years, and so on? Well, some people speculate that the seven seals apply to seven dispensations of the gospel. Okay. However, the traditional seven dispensations are not each a thousand years long. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's just the case. Two, hmm. There are two expert LDS scholars at BYU, Richard Draper and Michael Rhodes. And this is what they say about this, and I agree with them. Quote, the seals represent 7,000 years of history, but on the symbolic level, they represent the full period of history, no matter how long that is. In reality, history does not work itself into neat periods of precisely 1,000 years each, of which there are only seven. It just doesn't work that way. But the seven epochs of 1,000 years each may symbolize large spans of time. This is what Rhodes and Draper say. In Hebrew, the word thousand, which is elef, often means and can mean just a large amount. The Apostle Peter says, for example, one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Well, in other words, time is is so fluid with God that in their times and in their seasons, in their minutes, in their hours, in their days, in their weeks, in their months, in their years, all these are one year with God, but not with man. And that's uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants. And speaking of the Lord's day, Elder Bruce R. McConkie once wrote this, um, quote, what is a day? It's a specified time period. It's an age. It's an eon. It's a division of eternity. And there's one interesting possibility. It could be, and I like this very much, it could be that the 7,000 years correspond to the seven days in the cycle of the temple service in ancient Israel. In the ancient temple of Solomon, everything was done on a weekly basis. And a new course of priests would take over each week. A really good scholar named Judith Magnus says, quote, The order of cyclic ritual time in the temple was based on the seven days of creation. The cosmic order was preordained by God, and the rituals connected with it were performed in the sacred service by priests in the earthly temple, and by angels in the heavenly temple. So the seven days of service in the temple constitute one cycle of the eternal round. So just like creation took seven days, the temple ceremonies were organized around one week of seven days. Yes, and the 7,000 years in their minds could symbolize a full cycle of temple service, okay? Okay. Now, New Testament scholar Austin Ferrer says this, quote, God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh, thereby impressing the pattern of the week on all future time, Uh, close quote, establishing that the number seven expresses a pattern of totality, okay? So the 7,000 years is is act two, okay? Right, it's the the totality of act two. Yes, the totality of act two. Right, right. With act one being the pre-mortal. Pre-mortal life, yeah. Act two being the... Mortal life. And then and act three is... Being the eternal life. Yeah. Right, exactly. Okay. But there's even more to consider about the 7,000 years. 
In the book of Abraham 4, the seven days of creation are not called days. There are seven indeterminate periods of preparation and observation called times. Interesting. Uh, in, in Abraham chapter 4 is the most recent revelation we have had about creation. It's in the Pearl of Great Price. And he doesn't say the evening and the morning were the first day. He says the evening and the morning were the first time. Now, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. It's no longer a day. It's a period of time. Yeah. We don't know how long those times were. Brigham Young said this, quote, whether creation took six days or millions of years, it will remain a matter of speculation. Close quote. That's from a speech Brigham Young gave in, uh, on May 14, 1871. He's saying, what is, he, what is the prophet saying here? He's saying, it wasn't seven days. It was seven times. And we don't know how long those times were. Right, right. Well, couldn't that also apply to the 7,000 years that Joseph Smith spoke of. So you could see that, that the, quote, 7,000 years of temporal history is a symbolic expression. So we could see that the 7,000 years of temporal history is a symbolic expression in the tradition of the scriptures, but it is undefined, like the times of creation. And seven always means something completed or finished or whole. The 7,000 years of history, that could just be a number symbolizing the totality of history. Yes, a lot of LDS scholars think that. And, and now remember this, the word history, think about that word. It always refers to recorded history, okay? You can't have history without documents, mm -hmm. you know? You can have other kinds of uh, scientific evaluations of the past, but history requires documents. So human beings only began to keep historical records approximately 5,000 years ago. So to sum up, LDS scholars mostly think, and I quote from um, one of them, the 7,000 years are periods of trial and progression corresponding to the week of creation, the dispensations of the gospel, and the covenants of the temple. Uh, these millennia, also correspond to the eternal round of the seasons. The sons and daughters of Adam and Eve must endure to the end of the seven stages, the seven seals. Now, in our next episode, the Lord opens the fifth seal of the book, and we'll find out what happens then. Hope you'll join us. Yes. Well, I'm excited for that, uh, for that reveal. <laughs> Have a great one, you guys. Thanks. Thanks.